1 Peter chapter 3. Appreciate Orn and Kara being with us this morning. Again, it's just so good to see folks that have come up in this church to go and spread the gospel. And uh, yeah, it's wonderful. Well, our society is very confused these days about the concept of marriage. And I'm not just talking about who can get married to whom. I'm talking about just, you know, even within the church, I think there's some confusion going on. And I can illustrate that confusion by asking some key fundamental questions, which is, uh, is marriage an institution where you go primarily to find happiness? Because that's the, that's the pictures that we take, right? Of the couple, and she's on his shoulders, and they're running through the meadow, <laughs> basking in the warmth and glow of their unending, undying, unfailing love. Is that the point? Is marriage where you go to find happiness? What is the goal of marriage? Is the goal of marriage a year mark? Like 25, 50, or in this case on the screen, 75 years? Is that, is that the goal of marriage? I assure you, there's more to it than that. What do you do when a marriage becomes difficult? When the two parties don't get along, or as I think we're going to see in our text this morning, when the two parties are not on the same page spiritually, what do you do? Well, the answer to this this question, this last question about the spiritual not being on the same page spiritually, it's the answer to that question is not intuitive. It's not. As we will soon learn, if we just attempt to trust our gut or to even ask our partner what they want, like, what do you want? And I'll give it to you. We will very likely come up with the wrong answer. Peter helps us out in 1 Peter 3 today, so I I think we should look into that. Now, can I just say, as a disclaimer, before I even start preaching this message, uh, uh, 1 Peter 3 is where pastors go to die. (laughs) Uh, There are YouTube videos of pastors preaching 1 Peter 3, and that's their last sermon, okay? Now, I've watched some of those sermons, and the guys that were preaching them were way out in left field, and I'm gonna try to stay biblical, but I'm just asking you, uh, to have a little grace with me this morning. Um, I consulted with my wife when I prepared this message to make sure that I wasn't um, being needlessly offensive. But I, here I am, I'm a male preacher uh, preaching to a mixed audience about what it means to be a biblical wife. So, Lord help me. <laughs> now, before we even get it, let's ask the question. The question I think this text is answering is this. How does a Christian wife deal with an unbelieving husband? I think that's, we're going to get into why I believe that this text is saying this. Um, but this text is often used more broadly than that, and I think oftentimes erroneously. And, um, but, but let's get into it. And let's remember what the context is, right? Because the first three rules of Bible interpretation are context, context, and context. Thank you, uh, Chris Roseborough, for giving me that nugget. Um, and, and so the context here is suffering. First Peter 3, is Peter is writing to a, a church that is suffering. And he has talked about suffering under a government, right? About suffering under a bad employer or an unjust master, right? And he's also painted uh, or given us as an example, Jesus. He's, he's reminded us of the fact that Jesus had to suffer 
even though Jesus was not doing, attempting to do anything but good, even though he had done nothing wrong, he suffered, but he suffered for something that is good for our salvation, right? The forgiveness of our sin. And so we have to understand that the context here is suffering. And can I just say, as, and this is personal to me because I grew up in a home with parents that are of mixed spiritual backgrounds. My mother is a believer and my father is not to this day. My mother is a believer and my father is not. And so can I just say that suffering within a mixed spiritual marriage is real. People don't often ask me this question, but I'll tell you, uh, when I do premarital counseling, I'm trying to figure out what the spiritual status of each of the parties and here's the reality of the situation, and you may feel differently, and that's okay. I will marry an unbeliever to an unbeliever, and I will marry a believer to a believer. I will not marry a believer to an unbeliever. I won't do it. As much as I can discern that it's a mixed spiritual marriage, I will advise them to go do something else, and I will preach to the believer in that, in that uh, relationship that you are not to be unequally yoked. Uh, and so it's a big deal. Uh, spiritually mixed marriages are... There, there is suffering that can go on in these marriages. So I'm going to talk today to the wives, and then in two weeks from now, Pastor Aaron's going to speak to the husbands in those relationships. Let's get into the text. I'm going to read the text as we go through it. It's just six verses. First point is this. Wives are to submit to their husbands, to their husbands, with the goal of winning them over by your conduct. Look what it says in verses 1 and 2, 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. The likewise here connects, uh, this is the connective tissue between the suffering that's been talked about earlier under a government, under a, a boss, um, with Jesus as the example, the likewise is, is connecting back to that. So that's how we know we're talking about suffering. To submit, some Christian women refer to S, uh, submit as the S word, as if it's a dirty word. It's not. It's a wonderful word. Submit just means to arrange under. It's, a, it's almost like a military term, arrange in rank underneath, you know. The, uh, the private salutes the sergeant. You get the idea. So you are to submit to your husband, right? Now, there, there's a couple of options here I just want to discuss. You, you may think that this husband... You may read this text and get the idea that this husband is just a believer who's disobedient. You know, he's a, he's a believer who's not obeying the word. And I think this is less likely given the context. Uh, I think it's more likely something else. But, but can I just say that um, I think oftentimes, well, I think the Bible bears this out in Matthew 18, that our job as Christians is not to judge someone's heart, but we can judge their conduct. And so if you've got a, a husband who pur purports himself to be a Christian and you're showing him something that's a clear teaching of God's word and he's not at least acknowledging and responding to that, that we've got a problem on our hands, right? We've got a problem on our hands. And so Matthew 18 gives us this great picture of patiently and gently going to the person. If they've sinned against you, you go to the person. And wives, you can do this to your husband, right? If they're a believer, provided they're a believer, this doesn't work in a mixed situation, but uh, what I'm saying is, is that we, we go to the person, if this person, if your husband purports to be a Christian, but you go to him, you say, look, the Bible clearly teaches this, 
and you're failing to do it or you're, you're, you're doing something that the Bible prohibits, then um, if that husband agrees, wonderful. But if the husband says, no, I'm not gonna do that, then, you know, Matthew 18, take two or three others and go to him. And if that doesn't work, you, you tell it to the church. And if, he, if, he, if that husband or that Christian, for that matter, doesn't respond when the whole church is saying the same thing, right? There's always that person who, who holds up God's word and says, everybody else is wrong and I'm right about what this passage means. Don't be that person. Funny story about First Peter. In seminary, I wrote a paper. You know, every commentary in the world that's written on First Peter says it's about suffering. And I wrote a novel analysis of First Peter and said, it's not about suffering at all. It's about this, this, and this. <laughs> and my seminary professor very gently wrote on my paper and said, so everybody else is wrong. Spurgeon, he's wrong. Spurgeon's wrong. Matthew Henry, he's wrong. Chuck Swindoll, I mean, the list goes on and on. These guys are all wrong, and you're right. I don't know. You might want to think about that. So, so what I'm saying is, is that if... I don't think that the context here is a disobedient believer, but even if, the, even if the husband is disobeying to that point where he's, he's, he's totally resisted, even when it's told to the church, then the Bible says that we are to treat that person like an unbeliever. So I think, I think whether it's this or the next one, it's, um, this, this, this passage helps. He may be just an unbeliever. Or he may be an unbeliever, or he may be somebody who says he's a believer, but he's living like an unbeliever. And can I say, can I say, again, I think that the, the difference between a believer and an unbeliever is not what you call yourself, because this world is filled with people that says, I'm a Christian, but, give, but take, pay no mind to either trying to understand what God says, let alone live it out in their lives, right? I think the mark of a true believer is someone who is, who has humbly submitted himself or herself to God's word. So anyway, in this period of time where Peter wrote, it would have been very common, the church was expanding, it would have been very common for one spouse to come to Christ while the other spouse remained unsaved. And so I think Peter is addressing that situation where you have a mixed spiritual situation going on in the marriage relationship. Um, and, and that could bring conflict, right? When, there's, when one's a believer and one's not, that can bring conflict. Because the priorities of a believer and the priorities of an unbeliever are very different. Where are we going to invest our time? That's different. How are we going to invest our money? Very different, right? What's our number one priority in life right now? Who am I going to, who is going to dictate what I submit uh, what I am and what I am not willing to do. Who's going to dictate that? Those priorities are very different. An unbeliever might say, I dictate what I'm willing and not willing to do. Whereas a believer might say, the word of God dictates what I should be willing or not willing to do, right? So you get the idea. So next, let's wrestle with this. What does it mean to win? It says that, that even if some do not obey the word, that they might be won. These husbands, these unbelieving husbands might be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. What does it mean to be one? Because there's at least two possibilities that I thought of. Possibility number one would be that, that the marriage goes well. You win, wife. The marriage is going well. He's being a nice guy, right? I don't think that's what's in context here. I think what's in context here is that that husband comes to 
faithful obedience to God, right? That they be one to faith, right? In uh, one to faith through Jesus Christ. In other words, that they look at your lives and they see Christ coming out and the transformation that's happening in your lives as you grow and change, become more like Christ, as you walk down the road of spiritual maturity, they see that and they want it for themselves. That's what I think it means. That's uh, We're defining the win here. The, the win is that your husband comes to Christ. And how do, and how do you win? Well, it says that you win... Uh, with respectful and pure conduct. Now, question, and, and this, is where the, this is where it starts to get counterintuitive, meaning if you trust your gut or you just look at the societal cues around us, I think you'll miss it. I think you'll miss it. Who is defining what is pure and respectful conduct? The husband or God? This is something that you're going to have to think about, right? Is this pure and respectful as the husband would define it or pure and respectful as God would define it? And let me, hear me out. I'll make my argument as I walk through this. The conduct that Peter is talking about, I believe, is conduct that is pure and respectful as God defines it, not necessarily as the husband would define it. That's counterintuitive. That's counterintuitive. Let me, okay, now I am about to walk through a minefield, okay? Right up here in front of you, I'm gonna walk through a minefield and at the end of the sermon, you can tell me if I'm still employed here, okay? I'm not kidding. You think I'm kidding. I'm not, I'm sweating bullets. Maybe it's because the AC doesn't work. <laughs> this feels like Florida, doesn't it? Where's, yes. Generally speaking, does everybody hear me say generally speaking? Generally speaking, don't, I know that there's exceptions to everything, but generally speaking, women, the tools that women tend to use to control men, to manipulate men, I'm not saying that anybody in here is guilty of that, I'm just saying in general, the tools that women have at their disposal to control men are their beauty and their words. We're gonna see that in a second. And then the tools that men have to control women are their physical strength. And that's what Peter's gonna talk about later. Let's turn in our Bibles to Proverbs 7. Take your Bible, turn to Proverbs 7. Now, I am not turning to Proverbs 7 to say that Christian wives are like the woman of Proverbs 7. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying in Proverbs 7, we have an example of how a woman tries to manipulate or control a man. So in, in the heading in Proverbs 7 in my Bible is warning against the adulteress. So this is a parent probably or somebody who's high, uh, more older and more mature advising their son to uh, how to live this life wisely. That's what the Proverbs is all about. It's about wise living. It's applied knowledge. Proverbs chapter seven, verse 10 says, and behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute and wily of heart. Okay, so she's, what, she, what is the focus here? Her external beauty. She's dressed provocatively, right? 
She's loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home, now on the street, now on the market. At every corner, she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices today, and I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet, and this is, this is so typical of what we see in the culture today, of how it's possible to manipulate a man, right? I have come now to meet you, to eagerly, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. She's making him feel like he is the number one thing in her life. Above all else, I have come out to see you. Verse 16, I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with mercy. See all the emphasis on the external, on the sensory. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him, and at full moon, he will, be, uh, he will come home. See the words, we can get away with this. I have come to see you. Everything back at, at the pad is all prepared. My husband's gone. She's focused on her outward appearance, on the sensory, and she's using her words to entice. Just saying. I'm just saying. Verse 21, with such speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. Wow. And the wise older parent is saying, keep away from this woman. Okay, why did I say that? This passage is not saying that the pathway to winning her husband is just by, back to 1 Peter. This passage in 1 Peter is not saying that the pathway to winning her husband is just to submit by him by doing whatever he wants and saying whatever words that please him. Why? Because an unbelieving husband will likely say, well, if you, if you went to talk to him and, he said, and, and you said to your unbelieving husband, what could I do to make our marriage better? What could I do to please you? He'd probably say, well, you could probably work on your outward appearance and, and don't talk to me in ways that I don't like you to talk to me. Only talk to me in ways that I want to hear you talk to me. And I'm, tell, and I'm here today to tell you that I think what Peter is saying is, is that that's, that may be the intuitive way to go. It's not the biblical way to go. The biblical way to go is to be a godly woman a woman who knows how to speak the truth to her husband in love, a husband, as we'll see here in a minute, that doesn't, that, that doesn't let her outward appearance, a wife that doesn't let her outward appearance go into slovenliness or whatever, but, but is more focused on her inward character, right? I know it seems counterintuitive, but let's get to the next verse and see what God has to say. Because the next point is this. The key to a wife winning her husband over is Internal character prioritized over, over external beauty. Internal character prioritized over external beauty. First Peter 3, 3 and 4. Do not let your adorning be external. 
the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. I like that word, that phrase, imperishable beauty. If you have been married 75 years, how old would you be at least? 90? If you got married really young and you had to have your parents sign off? Who, is, who has retained their youthful beauty at 90? Men or women. I mean, can we all admit there's like, there's appliances that you're using, like teeth and hair and walkers and, you know, I mean, there's, in other words, don't, it's, don't cultivate, you're not going to win with, with perishable beauty, you're going to win him over with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Let me just quickly quickly go through this because my time is fleeting here. There's, there's some lies that we, that we just need to break ourselves of as Christians that are out there uh, in the culture. And, and even in the Christian subculture, I think there's some lies. Uh, lie number one is only external beauty matters. Internal beauty does not matter. Young ladies in this room, I am so, I feel so terribly for you because this culture is bombarding you, bombarding you. It's in social media, it's in the TV shows that you watch, it's bombarding you with this idea that your value is about as good as your level of attractiveness physically. That's a horrible message that's being sent to you and, and I, I, I feel horribly for you that, you're, that that kind of pressure is being applied to you I'm telling you from this pulpit and, and telling you what God has to say is your value as a human being does not rest on your external beauty. It doesn't. Internal beauty matters more. When I was a kid growing up, there was a popular phrase out in the culture by a character on Saturday Night Live, it is better to look good than to feel good. That may be what the culture believes, but that's not biblical. Proverbs 6 and 7 paints a very vivid image of a woman who is fixated on the external, and it is not a pretty one. In fact, it's one that the wise person tells the younger man, stay away from this woman. Yes, young men, you may be attracted to a young lady, and, uh, and you may be attracted to the type of young lady that's just overly fixated on her looks who's not in any way developing her character. And I'm telling you, watch out. It's a lie. The, the second lie, though, is, is the opposite, which is only internal, internal beauty matters. External beauty does not matter. That's another uh, lie that's out there in the culture today. In other words, some people will use this uh, text to say, well, uh, if it doesn't matter, I can just do whatever I want, let myself go, whatever, man or woman. You know, we could let ourselves go. And the reality of the situation is, is that there are passages in the Bible in places like Song of Solomon and even Proverbs 31 that indicates that the, the, the godly woman at least somehow, uh, you, you know, capitalizes on whatever God blessed her with, right? She, she takes care of her appearance. Uh, Proverbs 31, 22, she makes bed coverage for herself. Her clothing is made of is fine linen and purple. But the thrust of this passage 
And the truth that I want to share with you this morning is this. While both are important, we should, we should concern ourselves with both. The priority should be given to cultivating internal beauty, to cultivating Christ-like character. 1 Timothy 2.9 says this, Likewise, uh, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, modesty, self-control, not with braided hair, gold or pearls, or costly attire. That we, the priority that the Bible gives is we want to live as Christians in extremes, and we need to stop it, okay? We need to stop it. Christianity, living the Christian life, is often a balance, and there's tensions, and we have to set priorities. And so, yes, we take care of our physical bodies, but we don't give that, like, we're not going to be those crazy people that are working out eight hours a day, right? And getting big, humongous muscles, guys, and, you know, all this kind We're going to be the type of people that are prioritizing the cultivation of our character as we attempt to take care of our physical bodies. There's a tension. We don't run to extremes. That's what gets us in trouble all the time. But also know that there are societal expectations out there. and Because we, we are, we're part of a culture, we grew up in a culture, we live in a culture today. There are societal expectations. And our society has placed a large amount of importance on outward appearance. For example, all things being equal, their resumes being roughly the same, if you are part of a board that's going to select the new CEO for your company, are you going to select a guy that looks like Barney Fife or Brad Pitt? Education being equal, now listen, I'm just saying, there are societal expectations. Education being equal and everything, uh, experience being roughly the same, are you going to pick a guy that no other guy wants to look like? Or are you going to pick a guy that every guy wants to look like, right? Every lady wants their husband to look like, right? Well, most, I don't know about every, but some, some ladies in here might find Brad Pitt repulsive, I'm guessing. So there are societal expectations out there, and we need to understand that those things exist and, 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 and learn to navigate our way through these things biblically. There's also practical realities, okay? There's practical realities. And again, I'm walking through a minefield here. I don't typically, unless it's for Pastor Brad, I typically don't try to play matchmaker, okay? <laughs> and and I, have had, I have had nothing but epic fails yeah. I speaketh the truth, Pastor Brad. Not trying to sugarcoat anything. And this, this is not true of Pastor Brad, but typically when a guy, when a man, or when a, when a person is trying to set up another man on a blind date with a woman, what's the first thing he's going to ask? Can I see a picture? Now, when a when a person tries to set up a woman with a blind date with a guy, is that going to be the first question? What does his car look like? Somebody said, what does his car look like? <laughs> what does his car look like? That's going to go down in all time. Does he have a car? Yeah, yeah. So, so here's the ones I came up with. That uh, Does he have a job? Uh, what, what, what's he like? What's his personality like? You know, is he funny? Uh, does he go to church? Maybe the fourth or fifth question is, do you have a picture? Right? 
Those are just, it's just a practical reality, right? That we just all need to understand that God made men and women different. And so uh, we find each other, men and women find uh, each other attractive for different reasons. But, but, and within the realm of that, there are things that we can control and things that we can't control. I can't control where I was born. I can't control my DNA. Uh, you know, I, when I go to family reunion, if you ever stopped by one of our family reunions, you would see everybody has the Davis nose, right? It's, it's crazy. I can't control my genetics. I can't control my height. I can't control my level of you know, extroversion or whatever, where I was born or how much money was in my family growing up. I can't control any of that. But there are things that you can control. And those things extend beyond diet and exercise. Those things extend into how are you as a wife or a husband as we get into, how are you cultivating Christ-likeness in your life? How are you making yourself beautiful in Christ-likeness to your husband, especially if that husband is an unbeliever. And the, the secret is, is that both men and women, hear me now, both men, wives, and husbands, we know when we're being manipulated. Honey, if you give me what I want, I'll give you what you want. We know when we're being manipulated. Christ-like character doesn't do that. Christ-like character uh, speaks the truth in love, shows uh, respect, you know, you know all the characteristics of a godly man, a godly husband and a godly wife, you know, a husband's the loving, learning leader and the wife is the submissive helper. I mean, uh, this character that you're supposed to be cultivating, right? Uh, this quiet and gentle spirit. This is not. This does not mean that wives don't talk. That's not what this talking about here, right? It's it's the same word that's translated in First Timothy two twelve, where it's talking about how we should pray for everybody, for kings and all in are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. A, a, a godly wife conducts herself in a in a well ordered and dignified way. Doesn't mean she doesn't talk. Doesn't mean she doesn't register opinion. She does. My wife does it all the time, and I love it because when she gives me her, I, I consider her my chief number one advisor. And when she gives me input, when she gives me advice, it's good. And I know that because of her Christ-like character, she's not just giving me advice to get from me what she wants. She's doing what's best for our family. And sometimes that means putting her wants and needs on the back burner to get what's best for the family or our, or our marriage. In other words, Christ-like character is so much better, so much more attractive than what the world sees as beauty. And it comes out. Now, I am way out of time. I'm not way out of time. I'm partially out of time. And it's hot in here, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna wrap this up. This is a perplex, these next two verses are very perplexing and I'll keep this short. There are, there are biblical examples like Sarah that lead the way. Look at verses five and six. 
For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and not fear anything that is frightening. Why Peter chose Sarah for this example, I do not know. And here's why I say that. I mean, I'm glad that he did, and we're going to see why he did, I think, in a minute. But some twisted Bible people, twisted Bible interpreters will take from this and say stuff like this. You know, Abraham farmed out Sarah twice to be somebody else's concubine. You know that, right? He attempted to. He attempted to do that twice. Never never went through, but uh, he attempted to. And some twisted uh, pastors will say, even at that level, you should submit to your husband. And I'm saying to you, don't you believe that? Because in the context, and what we know from God's word is, is that just like with the government and just like with our employer, that we are, not to, we are to submit to them until they ask us to sin, the same thing applies to wives, right? Wives do not submit when they are asked by their husbands, even their unbelieving husbands, to sin. That's part of the Christ-like character that you are to cultivate, is to say, look, there's a line here, and you're asking me to cross it, and out of submission and reverence to God, you can say this in a gentle way, right? Out of submission and reverence to God, I'm not going to do that. And so don't take the example of Sarah and say, whatever my husband tells me to do, I have to do it because, you know, that's what Sarah did. Sarah and Abraham lived before even the Old Testament was written, right? They were following God's specific directions. And yes, Abraham messed up a lot, but he was not in God's will when he did those things, right? Because he was told that a son would come through Sarah, that he, would, that he was going to have a son uh, between he and Sarah, even though they were getting up there in age. And so we are to revere God over our spouse. So let me tell you, let me tell you very quickly uh, why I believe that this is why God, uh, Peter selected Sarah as an example. And I got this from Jen Wilkin, who is a, a, wonderful, uh, a wonderful lady in the church who is you know, teaching the Bible and having a profound impact on women. Uh, she's a very good uh, Bible interpreter and produces good study materials for specifically geared at ladies. Sarah, what's the number one thing that Sarah wanted in this life? A child. And it did not come, and it did not come, and it did not come. And the biological clock stopped ticking, right? All of the functions in a female body that makes child-rearing possible, probably by the time she had reached that age, had shut down. And so the temptation for her was to stop trusting, stop hoping, because life was difficult. And apparently she didn't. And God did provide a child, Isaac. And and then, and then God told Abraham to take Isaac and go out and sacrifice him. Now, imagine having that conversation with your wife, fellas. You know that child that you've been wanting all these years, then God finally came through and God gave us the, the child Isaac? Yeah, God wants me to take him out in the wilderness and sacrifice him as an offering to him. It's a horrifyingly frightening situation. And yet, what do we see? We see that apparently Sarah 
trusted that if this God that I serve has told me that he will provide for me a son, then he will. And if he has told me that this child will go on to be the child of promise and through this child will become a blessing to all nations, then if this God has told my husband to take him out and to sacrifice him, well, then he must know what he's doing and he must be going to provide. Maybe he's going to raise my son from the dead. I don't know what he's going to do, but I trust him. And so when I, when I read this example, this is what I'm thinking, that when life gets hard, when when things in your marriage don't turn out exactly the way that you want them to turn out, when your children don't turn out exactly the way that you train them to turn out or whatever, when life gets hard, you don't, you cultivate your Christian character to the point that you don't fold up, you don't run away in fear, you don't seize up, you don't lock up, you keep on doing good. And that is hard. My parents have been married, and there's no guarantees, folks. My, my parents have been married for 50 years plus. And in that time, my father has been an unbeliever for the entire time, and my mother has been a believer for the entire time. Now, you know, whatever. But I know what she hopes, and she hopes for him to come to Christ and be transformed, and it hasn't happened She stuck with it. Don't know what's going to happen. He could come to Christ five minutes before he passes, or he could come to Christ never. What's her job? To cultivate her Christian character and to do good and not fear anything that is frightening. It's a high calling you have, wives especially those of you that are married to unbelieving husbands. It's a high calling. We're gonna pray for you in a minute. Here's the answer to the question. A Christian wife deals with her unbelieving husband through cultivated character that produces winsome conduct. And that winsome conduct is not giving him you know, exactly what he thinks he wants, but giving him Christ-like character. Uh, yeah. Don't need to say anything else about that. Here's some possible applications, and one of them is not in your notes, so I apologize. First of all, cultivate your relationship with God, your understanding and application of his word. Uh, this, is, this will be very attractive to your husband over time. And then practice uh, Romans 12, 14 through 21. Uh, we do not overcome evil with evil. We overcome evil with good. And uh, that passage, I find that passage to be very helpful. Father, we lift up to you this morning uh, the wives of this congregation, uh, those that are aspiring to be wives, uh, those that never had the opportunity to be wise but are women of, of Christian character. Father, we pray that you would help them to cultivate Christ-likeness in their, in their lives, and that would spill out into their marriages. And Father, we pray specifically for those that we know that their husbands just have not yet trusted you through your son, Jesus Christ, as their Lord and Savior. Father, we pray that you would give them strength and endurance, help, them, help this message to encourage them to continue to cultivate Christ-likeness in their lives. And Father, we pray that you would do a work in the hearts of their husbands, draw them to yourselves. Father, we pray that 
you might use them as missionaries on that front to win souls for you, for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.